Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 54. Last week, I covered Euclid, the Greek-slash-Egyptian, who is considered the father of geometry. I also worked through the first half or so of the history of the legendary library at Alexandria. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'll wrap up the history of the library and get restarted on the Ptolemies, the Greek rulers of Egypt in the few centuries before Christ. So let's get started. When I left off in the last episode, Ptolemy VIII had just driven the foreign scholars in the residence at the library from the country. Of course, the scholars weren't going to just give up their trade, so they either moved to other kingdoms or went underground. Either way, they were no longer part of the library. As for those that left, they first spread out through the eastern Mediterranean and later did the same through the western Mediterranean. Aristarchus, a Greek astronomer and mathematician who was in residence in Alexandria, had a student, Dionysius Thrax, also formerly of Alexandria, who in the early 2nd century BC established a school on the Greek Isle of Rhodes. While there, he authored the first book on Greek grammar. And this is yet another example of something so obvious, like alphabetical order. But it did have to start somewhere. And, like Euclid, his work on grammar would be the standard for the subject. In his case, the grammar textbook would be used in the Greek education system up until the late 12th century AD, so for 1400 years. And considering that the New Testament was originally written in Greek, his work surely had an impact. But it wasn't just the Greeks who used this. At the same time, the Romans based their grammatical writings on Dionysius's text, and its basic format remained the basis for grammar guides in many languages even today, all after being expelled from the library. A different student of Aristarchus, Apollodorus of Athens, also of the 2nd century BC, settled in the Anatolian city of Pergogmum, possibly Alexandria's greatest rival city. It was here that he both taught and continued his research, essentially writings on Greek history and literary commentaries. With the exodus of these scholars, the reputation of the library declined. At the same time, Ptolemaic Egypt became less politically stable, and since the attention of the rulers was diverted from higher pursuits and towards maintaining their power, stabilizing the economy, and attempting to satisfy the populace, the library was allotted less and less resources. Over time, the prestige of the library and the head librarian declined, to the point that the position became nothing more than a political reward given to loyal subjects and supporters. Ptolemy VIII, the same ruler that expelled the foreign scholars, appointed one of his palace guards as the head librarian. Ptolemy number 9, in the early 1st century BC, is told of having rewarded an ardent political supporter with the job. The political nature of the job eroded the prestige so badly that no one bothered recording the history of the library, along with its head librarian. And that's a bit of irony. 
Previous rulers had been so fastidious in gathering and recording all that they could find, and it eroded to the point that no one cared who ruled the roost. At the same time, so around the beginning of the first century BC, the role of Greek studies and research was evolving. Given the efforts over the past several centuries, all major classical poetic writings had been standardized, and extensive commentaries had been written on the works of all the major literary authors from the Greek classical era. As a result, there was little original work left for scholars in this field of study to complete. Some chose to become redundant, producing syntheses and reworkings of the commentaries of the Alexandrian scholars from the previous centuries. Other scholars would write commentaries on the poetic works of post-classical authors, including Alexandrian poets such as Callimachus and Apollonius of Rhodes. All in all, the prestige of the library shrank tremendously. Which gets me to the next part of the library's mythology, and that's that it burned. According to the story, the library, or at least a portion of its collection, was accidentally burned by Julius Caesar during his battles in Alexandria in 48 BC. And this is a story that's actually very interesting and worthy of a little time. In that year, in the midst of a civil war, while the Romans, led by Julius, were cornered in Alexandria, his soldiers set fire to his own ships while trying to clear the wharves. This was done to block the fleet belonging to Cleopatra's brother, Ptolemy XIV. This fire then spread to the part of the city nearest the docks, causing considerable devastation. Many ancient writers wrote that the fire spread further and destroyed at least part of the library of Alexandria's collections, while according to some sources, destroyed as many as 40,000 scrolls. Different sources report less damage. Florus and Lucan, both Roman poets, only mention that the flames burned the fleet itself and a few houses near the sea, with no reported damage to the library. But a legend was born. What's unknown is how much was actually destroyed. However much, it seems the library either survived or was rebuilt shortly afterwards. Some 28 years later, so in 20 BC, the geographer Strabo mentions having visited the Malcyon, but his tone indicates that it was nowhere near as prestigious as it had been a few centuries prior. Also in the same period, Disdumus Calcinturus, a scholar and grammarian, is known to have researched at the institution. So, at a minimum, it wasn't entirely gone, but it was still suffering from a lack of investment and other support. To the point that by the 3rd century AD, there were probably no scholars studying there. Later in that century, between about 270 and 275, and a reminder, it's still AD, the city of Alexandria saw a rebellion followed by an imperial counterattack. At this time, whatever was left at the library was probably destroyed. More on this in a minute. Backing up a bit, the library wasn't out of the woods after Julius Caesar left. Plutarch, a Greek-Roman biographer, wrote in his biography of Mark Antony that prior to the 33 BC Battle of Actium, 
Antony was told of having given all 200,000 scrolls in the Anatolian library of Pergamum to Cleopatra, presumably to be catalogued and kept at the library in Alexandria. In his same writing, though, Plutarch noted that the evidence of this is little more than anecdote, and the motivation of such a story may have been nothing more than propaganda, attempting to show how the Roman Antony was more loyal to the Greek-Egyptian Cleopatra than he was to his homeland of Rome. Despite the low veracity of the story, there is one noteworthy element. No one would have believed it if the library didn't exist at the time. So while the gift of scrolls may be questionable, it does provide relatively solid evidence that the library was still functioning a few decades before the birth of Christ. And the gift, if it did occur, may have been intended to replenish the library's shelves after the accidental burning by Julius, a little more than a dozen years earlier. There's one more prolific piece of evidence that the library survived past the turbulent times of the first century BC, and that is due to the work of a potential resident scholar named Distumus Calcinturus, who I'd briefly mentioned a minute ago. He lived between 63 BC and 10 AD, so likely when Christ, Mary, and Joseph potentially lived around the corner in exile. He is thought to have written somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 books, which would make him the most prolific writer in all of antiquity, at least of those we know of. He wrote so many books that he earned the nickname Book Forgetter, since even he couldn't remember all that he had written. And these were not just meaningless books, as many have been condensed to extracts and remain modern scholars' most important sources of information about the critical works of the earlier scholars at the Library of Alexandria. In essence, he was summarizing the works of previous scholars at the library. He could not have done this if the institution had been completely burned or if it no longer existed. In the last episode, I mentioned that early in its history, it was so full that a satellite branch was opened. This branch was known as the Library of Serapium, and it may have outlasted the original institution. But it too was not forever, as it was vandalized and demolished in 391 under a decree by the Coptic Christian Pope Theopolis of Alexandria. By this point, though, all of its scrolls were probably gone, and the building was primarily used by Neoplatonist philosophers who followed the teachings of Iamblagus, a Syrian philosopher. After Mark Antony's gift, the history of the library goes relatively silent for the next 300 or so years, up until 284 AD. There is a little bit, though. The Emperor Claudius, who ruled between 41 and 54 AD, is recorded to have authorized an addition. Other than that, not much. It's theorized that the prosperity of the library followed that of the city itself. And if it did, the notoriety and economic prosperity of the city gradually eroded. During this time, the Roman Empire grew less dependent on grain from Alexandria. This caused a further economic decline, and the city and the library were inextricably linked. 
scholars at the library would engage in less original research and instead would focus on the editing of texts, correction of textual errors, and the writing of commentaries synthesized from those of earlier scholars. The more glamorous research would occur elsewhere. As a future scholar would later uncover, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And in this case, as the scholarship and the academic reputation of the Library of Alexandria declined, the reputations and achievements of other libraries across the Mediterranean would improve. During this period, the sister institution known as the Mousion still endured, and membership to it was still granted. But while previously this membership had been given based on one's academic resume, it too eroded to be a repository of individuals who had gained favor via their governmental and military patronage, and in some cases, even due to athletic achievements. Like I mentioned earlier, this even went as far as the position of the head librarian. From the Roman period, the only known head librarian was a man named Tiberius Claudius Babilus, who ran the card catalog in the middle of the first century AD. Besides being the librarian, he was also a politician, administrator, and military officer, with no record of important scholarly achievements. So, likely a political appointee. Then the 3rd century AD rolled around, specifically 272 AD. At this time, the Roman Emperor Aurelian fought the Palmyres to recapture the city of Alexandria from the Syrian-based kingdom. During the fighting, Roman troops completely destroyed the Brecheion quarter of the city. The library was located in this quarter. Now, if the library in Mausayan were still around before the battle, they were likely destroyed during the sacking of the city. But if by some stroke of luck they survived that attack, whatever was left would have been destroyed during Emperor Diocletian's siege of Alexandria in 297. And that's it for the history of this once great and certainly important institution. But I'm not quite done with its impact. Bear with me just a minute longer. Throughout its history, it's impossible to determine the size of the collection of the documents in any sort of reliable manner. Like I mentioned in the last episode, the collection started out as papyrus scrolls, but after about 300 BC, the library increasingly used what are known as codices, and a codex, plural form as codices, is essentially what we think of as a bound book. In that era, the pages were usually either papyrus or parchment, and the choice varied based on the location. In the case of Egypt, and specifically Alexandria, papyrus was the writing surface of choice. In fact, it's believed the institution never switched to parchment, which makes sense as Egypt was the home of papyrus production, and therefore supply. And there's more to this. Early in its history, the library and its attached Mausayan were consuming so much papyrus that little was available to outside institutions. Essentially, they needed something to write on, and this pinup demand led to the creation of alternatives, alternatives that included parchment. There's a cliché I'll avoid, but it involves mothers and inventions 
that summarizes the concept. Back to codices. When using scrolls, a single piece of writing could take up several scrolls. The writing would be subdivided into several different scrolls, with the goal of logically organizing each based on content. Think chapters. The division of these chapters was the work of the scholars in residence at the library. Ptolemy II, remember he was the ruler that was in charge when the library is thought to have opened its doors. It's written that he set a goal of 500,000 scrolls in the library's collection. There was an index, think card catalog, wait, don't, because even that concept is dated. I guess until someone suggests a better term, I'll just go with card catalog. This document has survived, but only in fragments, so it's impossible to know the true contents of the building. The library also influenced later libraries of early Christians, to the point that these religious institutions were modeled after it. These libraries would house both pagan and Christian writings side by side. And the Christian libraries would also house resident scholars who would examine, catalog, and critique the Judeo-Christian scriptures using the same methods that the scholars of the Library of Alexandria did for analyzing the Greek classics. Finally, in the late 20th and early 21st centuries AD, Egypt re-established a library in Alexandria with the goal of making it a destination for scholars from around the world. The building opened its doors in 2002 with several objectives, including the training of librarians for other institutions. And that's the library at Alexandria, leaving me just enough time to cover the next leader of Egypt, Ptolemy II, Philadelphus. Number two was the son and heir of Ptolemy I, keeping it all in the family. Because both his mother and father were from Macedon, he was fully Macedonian, despite living his entire life in Egypt. He would rule from 283 to 246 BC, during an extremely prosperous time for the recently independent kingdom. Both wealth and the accompanying splendor was fully on display. He had exotic animals from quite some distance brought to Alexandria, to the point that he put on a parade in honor of Dionysus, their god of the grape harvest and winemaking, a parade led by 24 chariots drawn by elephants, and a procession of lions, leopards, panthers, camels, antelopes, wild donkeys, ostriches, a bear, a giraffe, and a rhinoceros. According to scholars, most of the animals were in pairs, with as many as eight pairs in the case of the ostriches but the chariots were likely pulled by a single elephant, except for one large carriage that held a seven-foot or two-meter-tall golden statue. This cart was allegedly pulled by four elephants. Ptolemy II grew up in the royal household and was tutored by Philotus of Kos. Philotus was the first major Greek writer to be considered both a scholar and poet. Two of Ptolemy II's half-brothers would become the kings of Macedonia. And for him, prior to becoming king, he would serve as his father's co-regent for about two years. Number two's first wife, Arsinoa I, was the mother to his legitimate heirs. 
but his second name is due to his second wife. Philadelphus means lover of his sister, and you guessed it, his second wife was his full sister. Her name was Arsinoa II, just to make it a bit more confusing. She had previously been married to Lysimachus, a Macedonian general who eventually became a king in that region. Ptolemy would marry her after Lysimachus's death. With this marriage, number two also gained control of a bit of territory in the Aegean Sea. Now, you already know his role in establishing the library, but that's not all. He also contributed in a similar manner to the great museum in the city. It was number two who likely sponsored Manetho to compose his volumes of Egyptian history. The same Manetho whom I've referenced in so many episodes that I've lost count. The historian who, had he not existed, we would know so much less than we do. Also dating to his reign is the Pseudopigrapha Letter of Aristeas, which connects the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek to the patronage of Ptolemy II, but this connection may be a bit overblown. Walter Kaiser, a 20th century evangelical Old Testament scholar, does note that the Greek quotations from both Genesis and Exodus appear to be in Greek literature before 200 BC, dating to Ptolemy II's reign. This would mean that the language of the Septuagint may be more similar to Egyptian Greek than to the language spoken in Jerusalem, and therefore we may owe more to Ptolemy for our current translation. And Ptolemy maintained the Egyptian tradition of erecting many monuments and stele. Militarily, he led the Ptolemaic kingdom against the rival Seleucid Empire in the first of a series of Syrian wars. The Seleucids were Greeks similar to the Ptolemies. In their case, the Seleucids ruled Anatolia, Syria, and portions of Iran. Their territory also extended into the Levant, and therefore they held control over the Hebrews. It was this Levantine territory that the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires would fight over. Control over the territory would change hands many times during the period. Ptolemy would also fight his half-brother Magas, who had declared himself the king of Cyrene in 276 BC. Cyrene was a Greek colony in Libya. It was part of Ptolemy's empire until his half-brother established a throne for himself. Magas would then fight Ptolemy in 274 BC, attacking when the Ptolemaic army was fighting the Seleucids in the Levant. At this time in the Levant, the Seleucid emperor Antiochus I Soter had attacked Sele Syria while allied with Judea in the First Syrian War. This conflict would last for two to three years. More on this in a bit. This war in Syria was just the distraction that Magas needed as the Libyan colony apparently won. It would remain essentially independent until Maga's death in 250 BC. Back in the Levant, Egypt would eventually win, and the victory would solidify the kingdom's position as the definite naval power of the eastern Mediterranean. Ptolemy would command a fleet of 112 ships, 
along with more naval siege units than any other kingdom in the region. His navy would lose a battle to the Macedonians, but it appears to have been a minor skirmish as the Egyptians still controlled the Aegean Sea. In the Second Syrian War against the Seleucids, Ptolemy lost battles on the Anatolian coast and eventually agreed to a peace where one of the terms was he had to give his own daughter in marriage to the Seleucidian king. Whenever someone tells you that they want to be treated like a princess, this is a good story to have in your back pocket, being given away to your enemy. To their south, Ptolemy would invade Nubia in 275 BC. And then, in one of the stranger tales I've run across, and in almost three years, that's a really high bar. But in this case, in 270 BC, Ptolemy hired 4,000 Gaelic mercenaries, meaning they were likely from southwestern Europe, so what is today France and Spain. According to Posenius, a 2nd century Greek historian, soon after their arrival, the Gauls hatched a plan to seize control of Egypt. But Ptolemy was informed and instead had the mercenaries marooned on a deserted island in the Nile, where they either starved to death or killed each other, probably a combination of both. And last, Pliny the Elder, the 1st century AD Roman author, wrote that Ptolemy II sent an ambassador to faraway India, and we're relatively certain this did actually happen as Pliny's name was recorded on monuments in India, the world was slowly shrinking. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with Ptolemy II's son and successor, Ptolemy III. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, Subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Music